Welcome to the Mosh Zone, episode 115, week 115, volume 115, number fucking 115. Hey, going, guys? How's your week been? Thank you for tuning in. This week's guest is Jamie of Viscera and Unique Leader Records, and that will be coming up later in the show. Let's start things off with single of the week, and without a doubt, it has to be the new one from The Ghost Inside. The song is titled Aftermath. This is the first single to feature from the band's upcoming self-titled album that will be released June 5th through Epitaph Records. This song and this album sees the return of the hardcore champions, and I know for myself and a lot of our listeners, it's probably an album and a single we never thought we were going to get. It's a triumph for this band to be back doing music, and it's a heartwarming best bit of news you'll hear all year. The song bangs, the album's going to bang. Make sure you check this out. The band is The Ghost Inside. The single is Aftermath. The album it features on is called The Ghost Inside and it sees its release June 5th through Epitaph Records. Album of the Week comes from Trivium and the new one titled What the Dead Men Say out now on Roadrunner Records. It's album number nine for the guys, and this album takes every element the band has incorporated over the years into one. It's got the riffs you expect, the big hooks, the thrashy feels, the metalcore jams, and those sweeping, soaring melodies. This album is Trivium to Perfection. Great album, great things for this band, and I really, really recommend you giving this a go. The album's called What the Dead Men Say, it's by Trivium, and it's out now. It's now time for feedback, questions, what's been going on. Not a lot, pretty quiet, very quiet. We want you guys to know that you can get in touch, we'd love to hear from our listeners, so don't forget, send us a message on social media. Also, share, 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 share. Share the podcast, share the news stories, whatever it is, help us out, help us spread the word about the podcast. But the most important thing, guys, thank you everyone that's tuning in each week. We appreciate you, we love you, thank you so much. Enough of the ramblings, enough of the jibber-jabber, let's get into the main part of the show. This week I got to sit down with Jamie of Viscera and Unique Leader Records. First thing I'm going to say, thank you so very, very, very much, Jamie, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. So Jamie has been a vital part of the English metal community for quite a while now. He's been involved in bands and behind the scenes. He's been in bands like Silosis, Heart of a Coward, and his new band Viscera. He's also been a manager for bands and worked with a few labels, and he currently works for Unique Leader Records. I'm a big, big fan of Jamie and his work, and I've been wanting to get him on the show for a while. So excited and pumped I was finally able to get it done. 
Great chat, great insight, in-depth. Hope you enjoy it. That chat with Jamie is coming up now. So I usually start with kind of the same question for everyone, and it's when you were growing up, do you remember hearing an artist that wasn't necessarily a heavy artist, but just an artist in general that opened music to being in existence for you as a kid? Um, I guess it'd probably be... Well, I grew up listening to a lot of 80s stuff. My dad was always playing stuff on the, on the sort of record player when I was younger or whatever. So he introduced me to quite a lot of things. So I guess like stuff like Prince and Michael Jackson and shit like that. Um, and then like rock stuff-wise, you know, the typical shit like Led Zeppelin or whatever. But in terms of personal discoveries, probably um, Jeff Buckley. Mm. Um, I guess stuff like uh, Soundgarden as well. That's all still kind of within the rock sphere, though, isn't it? So I don't know if that counts. Yeah, it counts. It's kind of a, you know, when you're younger, I mean, I was, I don't know why, but I became obsessed with Aerosmith. So was there an artist for you that oh, cool. you just became obsessed with as a kid? Um, it wasn't like a single particular one, to be honest. It was more just, I kind of had an age, I guess it was around sort of nine or ten. I just started like lapping up as much music as I could. Um, and then when the new metal stuff all kicked off when I was about sort of 15 odd, so I just got well into that as well. Um, yeah, so everything just got progressively heavier, um, as I got older, but I still definitely still love all of the melodic stuff that I grew up listening to as well. So I go back to that a lot. Do you, do you think looking back on it, there was a reason why you started gravitating to heavier side of music? Did, was it the intensity? Was it the anger? I mean, what drew you into, you know, heavy? I think it's when the first went to, uh, to live shows, I just saw the difference between, you know, going to watch like a sit down concert or going to a pop concert compared to what happens in like a mosh pit or whatever. Um, you know, obviously that was that kind of intensity I wasn't used to. So that kind of blew me away and made me want to delve into stuff more. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess the live the live aspect of the music was the thing that stood out for me. And do you remember the first live show you kind of went to? Uh, well, I went to a Michael Jackson concert when I was real, like really, really young. Um, when I was about like five or six or something. But uh, I think the first gig I remember going to when I was really young was... I guess like Deftones. Ooh. So when I was got when I was when I was old enough to actually go out and still do stuff with mates and be allowed to do that and stay out late or whatever. It was again. It was sort of when all the new metal stuff was kicking off and when Pantera were doing like great great Southern Trend Kill and I guess it was like second Corn album had come out and things like that. Um, so I can't remember specifically which one was the first, but it was it was all just bands like that really, like new metal bands. Um, and then the bigger metal bands like Metallica and Megadeth and whatever. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, I got sort of into the heavier stuff as I got older, um, moving into more of early 20s and then just completely nerded out on it. <laughs> so when when did you uh, decide that, you know, music was a path that you wanted to pursue? Because um, it's not something that everyone goes for i mean everyone dreams of it in many sense but yeah yeah when did you decide okay i'm gonna pick up the guitar um i'm gonna do all of this i think to be honest like i never uh went out of the way 
intentionally to do music as a as a career like I, I still don't now even up until this point um it's always been a a thing that I've done just for the love of doing it um never sort of expected to make a wage out of it or whatever but I've always wanted to work in music since I left school so I, I went into it pretty much straight away from leaving school um sort of started out at recording studio because I did all my stuff at uni for that um worked at recording studio for a bit and then got in like a junior job at a record label when I was when no just before my 20th birthday <coughs> and you know you jump you're jumping into labels and um sound engineering from an early age um do you see this when you're that age as an avenue that you can kind of really get into or is it just what as you said you just landed into I think when you're when you're young, um, when you're that young, and you just wanted to sort of get your foot into the industry in some way, um, often you got to sort of start at the bottom or whatever. So that's that's what I did at, when I was at the studio. I was assisting an engineer there, um, and I was doing that like three days a week. And then the other three days a week, I was at a record label doing sort of internship type thing. Um, and then they gave me a job after about a year. Um, and then as far as sort of doing my own label stuff, that was obviously a few years later. I think that was back in 2000 and it was like 2007. Um, so, yeah, but I had quite a lot of time doing stuff for other people before that and trying to learn the ropes best I could. But it was very much like a baptism of fire. And again, I didn't do it with the intention of going in and going, this is my career path. It was just more of a sort of, like kind of a sideline thing along other stuff as well like I was working um doing the studio work doing the the label job and stuff but I never sort of thought oh I'm gonna go off and do this myself in my own right uh that just sort of happened quite organically later um once I sort of understood the mechanics of the industry and how things worked and I started asking questions like well why are they doing that that way or why are they releasing this that way or you know I started thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't start doing this. And then that was basically it. Um, well, from an early so, yeah. age, from an early age, if you're starting to get into the industry, in a way, is it taking away any of the gloss and glamour that a lot of people associate at a young age with the industry and with being an artist? Um, I think the gloss and the glamour people associate with the industry is more of like a, an ego propping thing anyway. Mm. Um, like the idea of being like a rock star or being you know having fans or anything like that to me just seems i just think it's ridiculous like the whole notion of it's just nuts i mean it's wicked if, if people are saying you know that they that they like the music that i make or they're a fan of a band that the labels put out or whatever that's that's wicked to hear but it's not it's not why i'm doing it if you know what i mean um you know if i was told oh your bands were shit and <laughs> you, the releases you put out are shit i'd be like okay cool <laughs> um to be like you know that's kind of like your opinion man <laughs> but uh you know i'm just kind of doing it for you know, without sounding sort of selfish and stubborn i signed the bands that you know that i want to sign the releases that i'd want to put out um and i've always tried to sort of work with people that want to make music without kind of restrictions or uh making music for the sake of sounding like something to just to sell a lot of records or just to be a big band in air quotes or whatever. Um, 
so yeah i think as soon as you start to kind of move towards the process in that way that's when it becomes you know more difficult ironically because you're sort of chasing a dream that could possibly not happen or if it does happen it might not be what you think it is and um you know a lot of bands seem to forget as well that you know there's only so long you can kind of run around jumping on stage doing it for until you're too old to do it mm. um and then if all you've got to fall back on is your band then sometimes that's not enough especially in this day and age streaming and all that it's becoming increasingly hard for a band to to earn a living um so they've got to be smart about the decisions they make and the tours they go on and you know who they're assigning the rights and copyright to and how long for and there's just a lot of variables now um but that being said it has become easier i think for people to make careers for themselves in their own right as musicians because the the platforms to release music on now are a lot a lot easier to access than before um like say in the 90s for example where it would be like word of mouth and tape trading and sort of you get you know at the beginning of the internet i suppose you'd get like chat chat boards and forums and stuff like that but it was it was no way near the kind of exposure you can get now from putting something up on facebook or instagram or you know youtube or whatever um so yeah i think there's just a lot more opportunities for musicians to make money now but it also means that all of the shit is exposed equally as well as the good stuff so we have to wade through miles and miles of shit to get to the good stuff um as opposed to in the 90s you were kind of listened to what you were told to listen to whatever was on the radio or in a magazine or on mtv or whatever um i think the, the process of musical discovery is a lot more natural and organic now um and as a result people are listening to a lot more different types of music and they're less sort of elitist with the type of music that they're prepared to listen to and try to listen to so i think that's something i've noticed quite a lot well the other big one nowadays is which has got to be interesting for you you know in your current position with unique leader records is that also bands and artists nowadays kind of can self-contain and self-manage a lot easier. Um, and Mm -hmm. a lot of them do because the power that they have now is a lot different to what they had in the late nineties, early two thousands. It is. Yeah. In terms of getting the music out there, um, you know the 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 old model doesn't really apply as much anymore so for labels to stay relevant now they've got to have really solid distribution um i think if you're running your label through like a big cartel or something similar um to me that's not a record label that's just that's like an e-commerce store and anyone can set that up um so i think to, to have real credibility now you've got to have you know a sizable distribution network either through a major label or through like a, a larger independent or have your own network set up if, if you've sort of done the graft long enough to have that kind of client base. Um, so there's labels like Earache, for example, they've probably got like giant mail order catalog uh, database that they can keep in contact with or Nuclear Blast, for example, or Metal Blade, that type of thing. Um, so it's like a combination of different factors now. Um, if you're starting a label in 2020, you're probably better off just sticking to digital. Um, but then how are you going to justify taking the rights away from their, you know, from your artists when you're essentially doing something they can do themselves. Mm. Um, so really for, for now, like a label's more of a, 
it's more of a way to, to get on board with an artist vision properly um maybe you know help them pay for the things that they can't pay for themselves um but the most important things having a really good distribution network to to reach new markets because no bands just want to keep playing to the same bunch of fans over and over they want to keep that that fan base growing year on year yeah it's it's a complex um scenario i want to definitely come back to all that but i want to jump back to um you know you with guitar and and vocals and you know um i remember discovering raise the dead after i discovered you were in heart of a coward um you know how'd you get into playing guitar and why'd you pick up guitar why didn't you pick up the drums um you know why that instrument and what was your learning process behind it like uh, I started playing guitar when I was like 11. Um, I think every guitarist wants to be a drummer deep down because they're usually telling the drummer what to play half the time. <laughs> but um, I mean, as far as sort of picking an instrument, I, th- I guess it was just easier to to practice a guitar in a, in a in a bedroom than it was to practice drums, you know. Mm. Um, but uh, moving from guitars to vocals was, again, sort of not really something that I did uh intentionally it's just one of those things like in raise the dead i was doing a lot of backup vocals and stuff um and then uh when i got asked to join silosis obviously i didn't you know me picking up a guitar next to bailey or josh would have been just retarded because they're just they're crazy crazy good players but um yeah raise the dead was more just uh again it was just a band that some friends did for a laugh and you know we weren't really expecting it to go anywhere. We did like a few little tours and we did a few things here and there. And then the, the band kind of sort of fizzled out. But um, funnily enough, actually the guitarist of Raise the Dead's got like an amazing band called Messenger. That's more like oh, is he Pink Messenger? Floyd, Jeff Buckley. Yeah. Yeah. He oh. does Messenger. Um, and Dan, who plays keyboards for Messenger, used to play guitar before I joined Raise the Dead. So, you know, it's sort of oh. all very sort of small circle, but um but yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't play guitar that much anymore, really. I pick it up like every now and again, um, more just for arrangement purposes, really. But I don't really tend to write stuff on guitar anymore. I might actually get back into it. Was um, was Raise the Dead time frame for you a lot about learning the ropes um, from being in a band? Because, you know, as you said, you know, you're doing all of this stuff with like label and stu- sound studios. So was being in that band a lot about learning the ropes and learning what does work and what doesn't work? Is that what kind of was going on for you at the time? Yeah. I mean, we, we got our first sort of taste of like, you know, playing with some bigger bands. Like we did some shows with uh, like Black Darling Murder and Red Cord and uh, Bring the Horizon actually back when they'd sort of just started out. And we were on a label called 30 Days of Night and they did – um a bunch of bands like martyr defiled bring me the horizon um trying to think off the top of my head asriel post-mortem promises like a lot of the sort of myspace wave of uk bands if you remember all that Mm -hmm. but um but yeah i mean again it wasn't really sort of something we went into like oh you know this is a band we're going to do like we're going to go on tour and we're going to release records and we're going to get signed. We're going to do all that. It was again, just like anything that sort of, in my opinion, sort of happens naturally. Like you do it because you want to do it. And 
it's a labor of love it's not something that you want to necessarily build a career around um i think that kind of comes by itself like once you realize you're making money from something and you've got a fan base that are you know asking for you to come back on tour and you're filling rooms and you're asking to come back on tour again and you're, you're making money out of it that's when you can call yourself a full-time musician you know otherwise you know i guess it would be an aspiring musician would be the phrase wouldn't it yeah well i think it's also interesting you look at how you say you know a labor of love and you know the way that you kind of went raise the dead to silosis to heart of a coward mm-hmm. shows that it is you do it for the love of it you're you know you do yeah yeah because yeah. At, at any stage are you when you when one when one band ends or you leave one band do you think i've had enough or is it like i still love this i want to still do it no no it's never been like that um you know it's just with anything in life like you, you sort of it, it there's like windows that open and close without getting too sort of cheesy about it. It's like once, once something sort of had its run its course, that's it. And some things last longer than others. Um, with Solosis, it was more of like an organic thing that Josh had a specific vision for the band uh, that he wanted to take it in, which I guess was like the kind of, you know, death Metallica, Gojira, like power four piece type thing. Um, like his songwriting was all very, instrumentally focused and guitar based so it kind of made sense really looking back um and obviously they've you know they've done what they've done and his career's moved on to the architect stuff and i think solos has just came back and did a new record as well so that was you know good to see um whilst with heart of a coward it was more um i guess we we all wanted to do the band full-time but none of us were kind of in a position to do it full-time um, and then my work balance next to how often I was available to go on tour just became too heavily balanced towards work. Um, and I, my son had also been born fairly, fairly recently, uh, before things started getting quite full on with work as well. So I just had less and less time to do the band stuff basically for a while. Um, so I didn't get back into band stuff with Vissa until I was in a position to, um, my son's a bit older now and pressure's off a bit more with work and I can sort of, obviously, because I'm running the label, I can pretty much go on tour whenever I need to. I can just take my MacBook with me and it's, it's much easier. Um, but yeah, I guess it's just circumstantial. You never go into starting a band to think, oh, I'm going to do this for three years or I'm going to do this for five years or mm-hmm. a year or whatever. Um, you just take it to a point where, you know, maybe where things grind to a halt or, or they slow down and if you can't, kick life back into it there's no point in flogging the dead horse Mm, well i also think it's interesting in from your time in silosis that people still reference you um as a former vocalist of the band when you know you look at their catalog and you're only on an album and an ep yeah do you look back at exactly do you look back at your time quite fondly in silosis yeah absolutely um i mean i'm still um in touch with bailey a lot um and Ali as well who obviously he wasn't in the band when I was in the band but I've known Ali for years because of the Bleed From Within stuff um yeah I mean to be honest I keep in touch with all of them um less so with Josh but that's not out of like uh any type of personal thing or animosity or anything like that he's just uh caught up in what he's doing I'm doing what I'm doing he's quite a sort of I guess quite a private guy um fairly sort of introverted whilst 
uh, I tend to sort of be a little bit more extroverted. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was no, you know, there's there's no sort of bad blood carried forward or any any reason for any shit like that. Um, and the same goes with the heart of the coward stuff. It's just yeah, just all got to a point where certain paths made sense, and that's what we did. That's what we ended up doing. Well, Heart of a Coward I found interesting, you know, which actually all of the bands um, that you've played a part of are interesting is because you also found a way with your vocals to fit it into any kind of pigeonhole that people put the band style-wise in. You know, you look at Silosis, as you said, it was kind of that, you know, uh, groove, heavy metal kind of Gojira stuff. Mm-hmm. You've got Heart of a Coward that was kind of progressive metalcore. And then you look at Viscera, yeah. which is just absolute brutality, death metal kind of stuff. Um, is that something that you also tip your cap to, that you can just throw your voice into anything that is kind of put in front of you? Um, I just do do what I do, man, to be honest. I've not really tried to um, tweak my vocal with each band I've been in. I've just, I've just done what comes naturally. Um, so I think if I tried to sound like X, Y, Z vocalist or whatever, um, it would just, it would, you'd see straight through it. I think everyone would see straight through it. So there, there are the, the, the vocalists that I kind of learned by and the ones that I was sort of basing my techniques on. And I tend to sort of just stick, stick to what I'm doing in that respect. But I have learned a few new kind of sort of techniques within techniques, if you know, if you know what I mean. Um, like when we went on the, uh, even on the first Viscera tour, I was, you know, chatting to, chatting to, uh, Will who's filling in for Lorna Shaw. Um, and he's amazing at doing all the kind of the tunnel throat sort of super low guttural stuff. Um, and he was showing me sort of different ways of doing that. And, you know, it's like a really good way to keep your vocals sort of warm or whatever. But, um, yeah, I never really sort of thought about I'm going to do a, a, a metal band or a death metal band or a thrash band or whatever. Um, kind of brings me back to the point at the start that we were talking about, about having, you know, as many different types of musical genres on your on your repertoire as you can in terms of listening to stuff because it, it keeps you broad-minded and it keeps, it keeps you open to suggestion. And I think if if I only listened to a certain type of music, we wouldn't have done certain things with the viscera album that we kind of decided to do um there was quite a lot of songs where you know putting clean vocals on it for example might have been a controversial move in some people's eyes but you know we tried a few different things and that's what worked um and i wouldn't i wouldn't have been able to do that if i sort of went in with the mentality of you know this is a death metal band can only do the death metal vocals and yeah it's, it's, it's a difficult one. Yeah, I think Viscera is, you know, we'll come to that in a couple of secs. I think it's, um, yeah, it, it's, I love it. I can't, I can't get enough of it. Um, Want to jump into a bit of Heart That's of fine. a Coward. Um, I remember discovering you guys, I think it was, it was something to do with Hope and Hindrance, and that came out. And a lot of our listeners will know of you from Heart of a Coward days, um, to say yeah. there was a groundswell kind of around that band by, by the time you left would be an understatement. Um, what was it like for you guys in the local English scene? Because, um, a lot of countries go through, you know, ebbs and flows with the local scene. And I know England in yeah. particular was kind of starting to come back with a lot of bands around this time. So were you guys 
making a mark pretty instantly or was it something that you guys had to grind and work hard for to make a name for yourselves? Um, I think the, the latter, to be honest. I think, you know, the band was going for, I think, two years, three years before I joined. Um, it was basically like the, the, the original vocalist of Hacktivist was, uh, was the vocalist before me. Um, I'm just trying to think. I mean, I think it happened quite sort of quite naturally, really. Like when we did our first tours, I think the first one we did was with Heights and someone else. I can't remember. God, it feels like ages ago now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember distinctly doing sort of tours to, you know, 30 to 50 people in a room max or whatever for the first tour we did. And then we just sort of kept, kept doing, uh, sort of the same, not the same circuits, but like, you know, I think when Hope and Hindrance came out, we did a club circuit for a bit, for about six months. And then we got a few more like slightly bigger shows and did like a run in Europe for a little bit. And the next record came out and those shows got a little bit bigger and so on and so forth. So it definitely wasn't like a, explosion onto the scene and selling out loads of rooms or anything like that it was it was quite organic and i think we never really got to a point where it was uh like a set like a sellout band where they could pack out like a, a room and sell out you know every ticket in the room i think they've got to that point if anything with the last album um was when i think they were like selling out like the underworld and stuff like that so you know fair play to them in that they just sort of keep doing what they're doing and there's definitely a sound that they write that's that's very sort of very much their own um it doesn't really matter who's sort of singing for the band that's that's the sound that they're going to sound like um but i think the reason a lot of people associate me with the band uh more than other singers is just because i've had a lot more output with the band mm. than the other singers have so i've been i've been on three albums so i'm sure now that Khan's in the band, they'll probably make another two albums. And, you know, by the time those two are out, people will, will probably stop, you know, reverting back to sort of the same old comments on YouTube or whatever. Um, Cause a similar thing happens, you know, when I first joined, people were talking about Ben being the vocalist and blah, blah, blah. And that was going on for ages. So I think people are quite fickle in that respect. They'll get used to how a certain thing sounds and hopefully just sort of move on with it. Yeah. But I do think, I think Heart of a Coward, with when you were in the band you know i do think i think you're very humble in saying that you know you guys hadn't reached a certain point but you look at what you did when in the band with the tours and you know i'm look i've got the special edition of severance here and i'm looking here and it's got the dvd of mm -hmm. you guys playing a download in 2013 download yeah um yeah that was great surely at at some point you think you know without everything that's going on in your personal life um, with work and mm. your son being born, surely you think you're on to something that's kind of looks like it's working? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was, it was working in terms of there was definitely, you know, the band was growing and we were on a decent sort of trajectory, but um, I guess there's just a, a point sort of in, in your twenties, moving into your thirties and so on, where people sort of draw a line at certain points about what's, you know, a hobby, what's a, a paid hobby, what's a part-time job, what's a full-time job. And mm. where do you juggle all those things? And I find, you know, a lot of the time, the people who sort of 
stick out their band for years and years and years and years and years are the people who are working the jobs that they're trying to escape and the bands are the about the band is the outlet and the the way for them to get the creative passion out and you know to let loose on stage for half an hour or an hour um particularly going out on tour you know like the amount of friends i have who come back from tour and they go back to their day jobs and you know post tour blues is definitely a thing man take it for me like i've seen some sort of almost jekyll and hyde changes in personalities you know people go back to their jobs and like fuck this you know but um but yeah, I guess it just depends on on what you're doing outside of the band and what what you know what your situation is. If there are kids, if there are wives, if there are jobs that demand that you be around for certain amounts of time, and you know how easy it is for the band to practice or for you to practice as a musician. You know how easy is it to get to a show or to go on tour? And there's there's so many factors. So I, I wouldn't say there's like a universal sort of rule. Um, but I think uh, one thing I would say is if you're in a band purely just to, just to be in a band, you know, or just to say you're in a band or hope that you're going to sell out a room or play on stage. I don't, I don't know. Like I said at the beginning, I, there's something just kind of vacuous about that. Um, you know, if, if you've got like a genuine sort of passion for it, I think that will come out in the music, um, by itself and people will latch on to that even if it's not like your livelihood or the thing that's paying your mortgage i think the moment you stop enjoying it if you're making money from it or not if you're not enjoying it it's kind of to me that's that's a worthless trajectory to go down you know yeah i also think it's true what you said that i think um naturally fans can notice if it's organic and real Mm -hmm. compared to if it's forced um, upon them with what Definitely. the band is doing. And you can see that in releases that bands do, as you said, you know, they're, you know, they need to release another album and then it just comes across very, uh, no passion, no energy. Um, yeah. You, you can tell the bands that have delivered an album to a record label because they have to, rather than, Oh, we've made a killer album. We want to put out like it. You can just hear it. <laughs> well, it's also, the, it must be the same for you with, you know, the decision when, you were like, okay, you know, I've got the boy and I've got the job and my wife and I need to step away from Heart of a Coward, probably in a sense to not tarnish what Heart of a Coward was doing and maybe not hold them back. So you're like, look, I need to let them do their thing. Was that a tough decision for you to make to step away? Yeah, it was. It was. It was really tough. I mean, there were loads of occasions after sort of leaving hard care where I was like oh fuck like, I shouldn't have I've made the wrong decision um you know and it was it was difficult to to listen to the albums for a little while I was like god because I really wanted to to play them you know but at the same time it, it did sort of allow me to do a lot of things that I think I, I probably wouldn't have been able to do had I just been focusing on on the band and stuff um yeah, I mean, it's a tough one looking back. I think you just sort of have to draw a line somewhere and be like, okay, what are you going to throw most of your energy behind? Um, and for me, just because I've been doing the label stuff, you know, since I'd left school, it just seemed like the most natural snowball to keep rolling with. Um, I think, you know, you, you you can always make music, you know, mm. but I didn't want it to be the only thing to fall back on. 
Well, yeah, I mean, you know, like you also said earlier, you know, you can't, you know, jump around on stage forever, um, you know, and yeah. you're... And I think a heart, a heart of a Coward Unplugged album would be quite hard to <laughs> push, as would have, you know, a Viscera Unplugged. I don't think anyone wants to hear that. So It'd be interesting. Yeah. It'd be interesting. You get a lot of listens Could in the be. first week. Um uh, but yeah. it, it's it's also because not only that, you know, you can't do that forever, but also, you know, the important decision with family that I think anyone that has uh, kids and a wife and stuff should will also be able to tip their cap to is that, you know, that's an important part of your life that you can't just put in the background and say, oh, it's going to be there when I leave a band. You kind yeah. of need to pay attention to it. Yeah, I, I don't think I know a single person in a band who's got a kid who's ever been on tour saying, "Oh fucking hell, I have to go back to my kid." Mm. It's it's always I can't I can't fucking wait to get back to my kid. That's that's all I hear. Um, that being said, it's just as equally balanced out with, "Oh god, I, I really don't want to come off tour." You know, don't want to go back to the real world. So, I guess it just all depends on what on what your status quo is, what your situation is. Um, I think with Heart of a Coward, if, if we were, if we'd got to the States a bit sooner and we'd managed to do a bit more international touring, we probably could have got to a slightly higher level sooner where it would have made like a, a living for all of us full time. And then everyone could have probably left their jobs to do it. But I don't think we were in a position to kind of take that risk at that point. Um, I mean, Carl's just uh, had a kid as well, guitarist for Heart of a Coward, and I know uh, Noddy's just set up his drum school thing. He's got like a sort of school of rock type drum clinic set up thing in Milton Keynes that's doing really well now. And yeah, so I think everyone's got, you know, fingers in dirty little pies, getting on with stuff at the moment. Um, so the band's not the only thing for, for any of them, I don't think. They've all got jobs. I know that, I think, V's quite high ranking at uh, one of the major supermarkets as well in like one of the managerial roles or something, you know, something that would blow your mind. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about it. So, but <laughs> the point being, you know, I think there's a point in your early twenties where you have to sort of look at your career a bit and not look at just being in a band for a career. If it's not already taken off, then do it as a labor of love. And if it's good enough and the, you know, the stars align the right way, you can make a career out of it. But I think there's nothing sadder than someone just so thirsty for that, that they put everything else to one side and find themselves at 40 with, you know, oh yeah, you know, back in the day, my mm. band played that place and we supported so-and-so. And it's like, they're sort of, I don't know, by themselves, no wife, no kids and a big old beer belly and a load of anecdotes <laughs> that you don't really want to hear. I just, that's not going to be me, you know? No, uh, and it is quite it's quite sad to see that. Now, mm. you know, interesting, um, after you leave the band, you know, you mentioned earlier about label and you, I know you did some booking agent kind of work, management kind of work. Um, so all of that experience that you'd had in the early years obviously paid off because the first kind of role... I noticed you appear with was Sumerian Records. Yeah. Now, how yeah. how did that come about, and what was your role and responsibilities within the label initially? Um, I was doing basically label operations for the, the markets outside of America. Um, 
I was there for a couple of years and then Eric and I had become quite good friends by that point and then he asked me to come over to Unique Leader to uh, do label management for him because he wanted to take more of a back seat and just focus on A&R because um, his daughter had just been born and then it just sort of again happened quite organically from that when you're in when you're in a label environment um and especially something like you know you compare sumerian to unique leader and it's apple and oranges kind of thing you know um yeah you listen to a unique leader um artist and you know it's on unique leader and i mean that as a compliment i don't mean that in a negative you look at sure sure you look at sumerian and they have using your phrase they've got their finger in too many pies probably is probably everything yeah yeah. well it didn't used to be that way for sumerian though like from sort of 2006 through to about 2010 they had a very distinctive sort of brand which was that sumerian core you know basically veil of maya after the burial born of osiris that sort of style the gent the gent style but um i mean one of i mean ash is a really really savvy clever businessman he's got very sort of forward thinking mind on where he thinks the industry is going and for the most part the stuff that he was saying was pretty spot on really um in that it is quite hard to make a label of that size purely off the back of music that heavy because there's a ceiling that it hits there's only so much radio play american radio stations will give it and only so much racking you can get in stores and things like that um so I guess that was just more of a decision on his part. I wouldn't want to speak for him, but the vibe I got was he wanted to take the label to a more mainstream direction. It was like a very intentional move, and he was aware that they were going to lose some fans, but probably gain a lot more in the process, you know. Whilst mm. with Unique Leader, it's pretty much the opposite in that there's a brand that, you know, the catalogue's pretty much 90% of that brand is like to over 200 releases. So if we, if we deviated from that too far, I think we would, we would lose the key sort of fan base of the record label. So it'd be quite tough. Um, so yeah, for anyone listening out with unique leader stuff in mind, don't worry, it's, it's not going to change. It's going to be pretty much the same type of stuff. But that being said, we did sign some deathcore bands and we signed some sort of less brutal death metal stuff, which got a lot of flack from the purists but they're also the bands that are doing the most traffic on all the digital servers. So it is a double-edged sword. Yeah, that's got to be an interesting thing with uh, being in a label, you know, the purists or, as a lot of people call them, the elitists that you must get, Um, which, you know, I remember, you know, it's being honest, I remember being 18, 19 and being very uh, passionate about what I was into, but I think it's reached yeah. an uh, reached an ugly monster stage now, where the social media platform, the YouTube platform. Um, do you find that's something uh, that's easy to navigate, or do you ignore it? I mean, what do you do with a label when you release a single and announce it for a new band, and there's all these people saying, you know, it's not this, it should be this. Why you've signed this? Why have you done this? This sucks. Unique leader's gone down this path. um well to be honest one the the amount of people saying that versus the amount of positive stuff is usually a lot less so Mm -hmm. yeah you get one or two shit talkers or whatever um but 
I don't think it's, you know, I don't think we sort of sign bands with those people in mind. I think it's just more a case of, you know, most discerning metalheads don't listen to just one type of metal. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones who do just listen to one type of metal tend to be encyclopedic knowledge types for that genre and they'll buy everything in that genre. But those types of people are such a small niche of the market that if you just worry about pleasing them and only them, um, you're probably never going to be bigger than like a, a mail order distro type label. So, uh, yeah, it is a tough balance, like finding, you know, you don't want to just sign sort of the most brutal thing you can possibly find. And it's only got like 33 monthly listeners or whatever. And, you know, they can't tour and they can't, you know, do anything that sort of expects you to like make the band bigger. If they can't do it, then it's, it's a difficult band to sign. But by the same token, if you're only signing a band because of their numbers and uh, because they're selling X, Y, and Z venues out, it's, you know, the integrity and the the sort of passion behind the band is not going to be there either if you're just doing it for the numbers. So it's it's definitely like a a more detailed process now when we look at bands, if we're going to sign them, it's not just a question of how good the music is. Um, There'll be a lot of questions after that once once that sort of mutual desire to work with each other is there, there's a lot of other questions that follow. Um, so yeah, do you, yeah do you, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, do you find nowadays with, um, you know, the kind of oversaturation of bands, I mean, there's a lot of bands going on. Do you find that you guys are getting a lot of submissions from bands to sign to the label um, and is that difficult for you guys to do to sit there and go through 40 bands and find the gem in those 40 bands? And then the other side of the question is, um, how do you make sure that when you're signing a band, you're not just signing a band um, based off the fact that you think it's a safe bet? Um, okay. So as far as how we would sort of consider, you know, the prioritizing going through everything, I just sort of, tend to listen to everything that we get sent as a rule, even if the name is terrible. Um, <laughs> Do you get some really bad names? If the, if the, yeah. I mean, without naming any, any bands, we've, we've signed bands where their names have changed before mm-hmm. they've announced. Yeah. Uh, I, I know the one, signed, you know? I know a couple you're talking about. So yeah, there, there's a few. Mm. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah. But, um, <laughs> You know, there's also been instances where we've signed bands off the back of emails that are like borderline piss take rude or just like so badly written that they I've laughed out loud or, you know, but you should always just listen to everything, I guess is the moral of the story. Just listen to everything gets sent, even if they're called like jugular custard priest or whatever, <laughs> doesn't matter. Um I'll usually know within about 30 seconds of listening to something if, it, if it's going to grab my attention or not. And then if, if it does, I'll keep listening and um, then I'll send it on to the rest of the guys in, in at the label after I've given it a few listens and thought, yeah, this is something that I'd want to work with. Um, and the same goes for the other guys at the label. If they hear something that they think I like, then they'll send it over. And, you know, we do go through a lot of stuff, but that that process is part of what makes the job fun. Is it is it also hard, um, as you also mentioned earlier, about when a band wants to get signed or when you find a band you want to sign that, you know, you need all the things to be in position to make it worth signing? Or are there situations where a yes. band has the talent but hasn't got everything else and you're willing to take a gamble? 
that that has happened as well um where the music's been amazing but the band can't tour for example or it might just be like a a one-man band or something um but to be honest it's quite difficult to to make that work unless they've already got quite a large fan base sort of organically that they built themselves and usually when that's the case they tend to not want to go and sign with the label they'll tend to self-release you know so um I would say it's like a, a balance of, you know, being able to tour um, and also having like the, the flex, a bit of flexibility in terms of how the band works behind the scenes, you know, for all the reasons we mentioned before, because everyone's got jobs and kids and, you know, obviously if you're dealing with bands that are really, really young and they haven't been through any of that stuff yet, usually there's parents involved who get, con- you know, concerned about kids sort of missing university or missing you know, college stuff to go on tour and things like that. So there's always something, put it that way. There's always some sort of fucking headache that you get, uh, depending on what band it is. But that's also part of the enjoyment of the job is kind of making a project work, despite all of the little things that can get in the way. Do you also, you know, you obviously get a lot of submissions, but do you also um, yourself uh, scour the streaming services or the internet to find someone who's maybe signed that you want yeah. to try and get? Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd say about three quarters of the signings that we actually go for is stuff that we've found rather than stuff that we've been sent. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, look at th- thinking back, sort of tracking through the bands that we signed in the last sort of year and a half, that's pretty much been the case. But that's another sort of blessing with all the digital music stuff is like Spotify have got that radio mm. feature. Uh, YouTube have got the recommended content feature. So if there is a band that you like, chances are if you just let it play while you're working or driving or whatever, something's going to pop up and you'll be like, fuck, what's that? Um, which has happened a few times. I think that's how we ended up signing um, within Destruction, thinking about it. Oh, it was like something popped up. I think I was listening to Attila of all bands and then Within Destruction came up and I was like, fucking hell, that, that's better. <laughs> but funnily enough, you know, their last single basically sounded like Attila. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a bit of a weird one. That discovery process is is definitely part of the reason why why I do this for a job because it's, it's nothing really beats that feeling when you do find a band that you want to sign. You get that sort of tingle, like, fuck, this is awesome. Um, especially if it's a band that no one's really heard of yet. Yeah, the I remember doing it as a kid, finding a band that no one had really heard of yet, and then you get so excited, and then you're yeah. showing it to all your friends, and yeah, I mean that that yeah. must be on a different level when you, you know, behind a label. Um, an interesting question that kind of, is, you know, there's two questions here. So I ask the first one: What's it like now being on a label, working, you know, as you do? with the industry, with streaming and everything, do you find it's a constant challenge with the way the industry is constantly evolving or do you enjoy the challenge and you find it, um, it keeps you on your toes? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not really been like a day and night change. It's been quite a gradual thing over the last five or six years, that sort of shift from digital to physical, um, sorry, from physical to digital in terms of like the way things are, are listened. Obviously there was that massive gap in like 2010 when all of the Napster stuff was kicking off, uh, the lawsuits and all that. And you had all the line wire mm. um, controversy, uh, controversy about people mass downloading catalogs and all that. But 
it, it sort of smoothed out over the course of the next sort of three or four years. So by the time we got to about 2015, everything was pretty much where it is now. But the playlist culture that's hugely prevalent now wasn't really there before. Um, you know, I think the digital sort of services were still finding their feet about actually figuring out what it was that they actually were. Um, and that, that's still the case now in terms of like what each digital platform offers. Like they were pretty much all offering the same thing at the beginning. It was just a way to listen to music. But now I'm finding, you know, things like Tidal is obviously more catered to like high resolution audio. YouTube's more catered towards, you know, video playlisting, almost like a, you know, a way to sort of archive all your different videos and make playlists and stuff like that. Apple Music is for both video and for music now because they've integrated iTunes. Um, it's all a bit different than it was even just a couple of years ago in terms of what platform gets used for what. Mm. So I think there's less impetus now on selling CDs and vinyl. I mean, the market's still there, but it's 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 not the driver market that it used to be. Um, and it's not the the benchmark upon which labels will base a band's success anymore. So 10 years ago, you'd have a label saying, you know, the first week's sale for this band's album was this, um, and they sold X, Y, and Z over the course of the cycle, and that's what they'd base success on. It's like the amount of units that they'd sold. Um, whilst now you've got, you know, whether your reach is organic, whether it's growing each month, what percentage is it growing by, what are your monthly listeners on each digital thing, and what are your view counts, what are your social counts, it's... You know, I think people are still putting all that data together and figuring out how that correlates to how big a band is. Because you can have a band that sells out a thousand cap room and they might have only 10,000 people a month listening on Spotify. Mm. Or you might have you might have a band with 200,000 listeners a month on Spotify and they can't even sell out a hundred cap room. Um, so fuck knows. Still sort of figuring it all out at the moment. Um, I think every, I think the whole industry is, but there's definitely a massive shift over towards digital with as far as how people are consuming music. Um, I'd say it's probably about three quarters of the traffic that we get would be through digital channels now. Well, the other thing that's a challenge now, um, and I know when we were messaging to get this set up and you had some chaos going on because of this pandemic that's gone on. Yes. Um, talk about a spanner in the works for any band, but also for a label. Um, is this yeah. ha- is this made you guys have to reevaluate and readjust your approach to everything? Um, I wouldn't say readjust the approach to everything, but it, it's definitely we've definitely noticed how important touring is to a band's cycle. Um, I mean, we thought that with all the COVID stuff and with people sort of staying at home that they'd end up all on music and listening to stuff all day long. But there's actually been a dip across the board ever since that's happened. You know, I'm, I'm assuming that people just sort of all hop on Netflix and watch films and box sets and whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, it is a tricky one. It's definitely hit everybody hard, I think, across the industry. Um, obviously with record labels and with what we were just talking about, a lot of the consumption now is digital. So people are still listening to stuff at home, um, but they're not on their commutes to work. They're not going to the gym. They're not doing the things that might warrant 
listening to music on the regular. So yeah, there's been a huge dip and bands not going on tour means they can't actually promote their product on the road and they can't sell stuff on the road. So yeah, it's a lot harder to be in a band right now, I think, than it is to be in a label. Mm, it's got it's quite weird that you know, I didn't even realise that when you delve into that what you're saying about the streaming numbers it's true a lot of those numbers were gained from gym time commutes um Mm -hmm. so that's quite interesting that people aren't sitting at home you know i know that when i'm sitting at home i have my headphones on i'm always listening to something but i think i'm probably in the uh low low percentage but yeah it's quite it's quite interesting um everyone listening make sure you if you've got some time and you're sitting at home in lockdown just stream something, have a listen, crank it in the background when you're cooking, you know, do something with your music. Yeah. Or just leave, or just leave it on overnight. If there's a band that you really, really like and you want to support them, just put their album on repeat and put your Spotify on mute or whatever on your, on your computer and just leave it playing overnight. Cause even, I swear that would make a difference to so many bands. I mean, even they're paying out a pittance, like fuck all per stream, but it's definitely going to make a little bit of difference. Yeah, fuck yeah, yeah. The great. That's yeah. Everyone um, listening, and I know everyone listening loves their music. So get on to that. Um, let's talk a little bit about Viscera and um, the release uh, Obsidian, which um, I mean, oh, just oof is all I can say when it comes to that release. Um, how did how did the formation of the band come about and was it a case of you had an itch that you needed to scratch and you just like, I've got to get some more music out there? <laughs> uh, it was a little bit, yeah. Um, I think it was just more of a case of like right place and right time. Um, but the way it came about was uh, I was speaking to our drummer uh, and our guitarist and then one of the bands that the drummer was playing in sort of not not sort of wound down, but they were just doing less and less. And I think um, sort of the talk of a new band sort of got quite excited and they'd sort of jump on board. And then we spent about nine months writing the album, um, which took us up to about September last year. And then we put that first single out and then the rest just sort of happened as it's happened, really. Released the album in March. Um, did the first tour for the record with Decapitated and Lorna Shaw and Ingested and Beyond Creation, but the tour got... Um, cut short after like, just over a week because of the COVID stuff. Um, so yeah, it's still very much like a brand new project. We're just seeing where it, where it's going to go really. But the um, reception off the back of the album's been wicked so far. So we're pretty happy with it. And obviously, it's going to be—is it going to be a band that will tour as much as possible, or is it kind of just going to be um, a bit of? you know, when it's in a, a good tour and when it's appropriate to tour? Because you've still got your life and your label, so... Yeah, I mean, it's more, probably more the latter, actually. I mean, we are going to tour as much as possible, but it won't be a case of staying out on tour for the sake of it. We'll we'll do touring when it makes sense and, um, you know, when it sort of fits around everyone's lives. But I think the plan would be to make sure we hit every major market at least once um, on every album that we do. Mm, well, I think... I think um, just keep doing it, and I'm excited to even. Yeah, it sounds selfish and very uh, gluttonous, but I, I want more. You know, I, I, I want more. <laughs> but I think with this downtime, we'll probably end up writing uh, a few more singles just to tide everything over between 
now and when we can start touring again because I don't think anyone's going to be out on tour again until probably October kind of time by the looks of it at least yeah. um, so I imagine we'll probably see a lot of bands releasing new material because everyone's at home sitting on their asses. yeah it's weird it's such a crazy time now last thing I want to talk about before we look to wrap things up is your fitness and your jiu-jitsu um you know for everyone listening um, I, I know some people into fitness, some people aren't. Um, it's kind of an interesting balance because it keeps your body healthy, but it keeps your mind healthy. And I think it's very intriguing when people are yeah. doing this because you are uh, yin and yanging your life in the right way. Um, how did you get into fitness and jujitsu? Um, pretty much exactly what you were just saying. Really, it's just a, it was just a way to kind of balance out um, work and the stresses that can come with that. Um, I've been doing martial arts since I was a kid and I've been training in gym since I was about, I guess about 18 or 19, um, on and off. So yeah, it's just something that I've just kept doing. Um, and I guess it's like the closer you work towards stuff, the more you want to do it. So that I was working my way through the belts with jujitsu and it, that sort of motivated me to keep doing it. Um, and the club that I'm at is a really good club in terms of the family vibe at the club and stuff. So, um, yeah, it just sort of keeps me sane. Although that being said, I've been slack as fuck since all of this lockdown stuff's happened. Do you find do you find that you notice it? You know, obviously physically, you know, I know because I've got a home gym. Uh, but you notice the difference when you're not doing it physically. But do you notice the difference mentally when you're not getting a chance to do it? Definitely, yeah, definitely. You feel a lot more lethargic and uh, I'd say like a little bit more irritable and prone to sort of being a bit down in the dumps and stuff because you're not releasing all your endorphins. Um, but yeah, I guess it's just a, it's just a healthy routine to get into. Um, you know, some people like to play footy on the weekend or, you know, go for runs or what have you. Um, and that just worked for me. Um I mean, the jiu-jitsu stuff, I can't really train more than twice a week because it just fucks you up. Mm. Um, and it means I actually can't sort of train in the gym, so I can't keep that balance. Um, I know some people who train three or four days a week doing jiu-jitsu and they don't go to the gym at all. Um, and they're in the same condition, you know, like really, really super fit. But uh, I don't know. I've always liked sort of just putting on something really heavy and then lifting something really heavy. Nice yeah. and simple. Yeah, you've got, you, you've got a fair, you, you know impressive muscle going on at the moment um, <laughs> i'm yeah. literally eating a bakewell tart right now <laughs> I this stuff. This is all, it's all bollocks <laughs> <laughs> you're just you're just all into photoshop aren't you <laughs> that's it mate that's it i'll just sit there with the pinch tool all day long yeah <laughs> um um no, I, I try and sort of eat as clean as possible when i can but um you've got to have a yeah, cheat day you've got to um, have a cheat day or a cheat every yeah. day Absolutely. I don't really drink much. So I think that's another, you know, it's quite, it's, it's easier to stay sort of semi in shape if you're not drinking mm. um, or not, not drinking. That sounds like, you know, Oh, I don't drink, but I'm not one of those people sort of like constantly have a six pack in the fridge and just be drinking all the time. Um, tends to be sort of, if I go out for dinner or if I'm going out, out, then I'll drink. Otherwise I'll just leave it. Yeah. I think that's also important for, for mental health as well. Um, not doing that, not drinking. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What we're going to do, um, we wrap things up with a segment called Pick Your Poison. 
Um, so everyone listening okay. is now going to find out what makes Jamie tick. Um, and <laughs> basically, I give you two options. Uh, you pick your okay. favorite of the two. You don't need to justify mm-hmm. it, but if you're worried okay. that people aren't going to understand your choice, you're welcome to justify it. <laughs> okay. Because um, and also um, I've I've broken some people here because they're not easy. Some are easy, some are hard. Okay. Now. Okay. Uh, pizza or burger? Let's do it. Pizza. Okay. Yeah. Ribs or brisket? Without without a shadow of a doubt. Um, brisket. Okay. Chicken or beef? Oh, fuck. Here we go. I'd say chicken because you can't eat beef every fucking day. So, I'd, yeah, I'd say chicken. Okay. Uh, smooth peanut butter or crunchy peanut butter? Oh, don't do this to me, man. <laughs> I was just having this conversation with my girlfriend the other day. Uh, well, I'd say smooth because it's more versatile. But if we're talking a sandwich, crunchy. Okay. Coffee or tea? <sighs> Coffee. Okay. Uh, soft taco or hard taco? <laughs> Definitely a soft taco. Cook at home or dine out? Oh, cook at home. Uh, new movies out. Do you want to see it at the cinema or do you want to wait to watch it on your couch? Mm. Oh. That again would depend on the type of film, you know what I mean? Like if, it, if it's a big action movie or something that's hyped, I'd want to go and see it. But if it's the amount of times I've seen trailers and gone, eh, I'll just wait for that one. So I guess at, at home on the couch, I would say. Okay. Now you live in England, um, so the next one's going to be interesting. Would you rather spend the day at the beach or the day at the snow? Oh, at the beach, 100%. Um, we, don't, we don't get enough sunlight. Well, you, well, my wife's English, and I remember living there with her, and you get a week of summer. So, Yeah, yeah. It, you have to be on the south coast of England to get any type of good weather, and otherwise you're fucked. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, cat or dog? Dog. Nice. Um, All the way. Now, a couple of movie ones, Terminator or Predator? Oh, Predator. Okay. Uh, Rambo or Rocky? Rocky. Uh, Freddy or Jason? Freddy. Okay. South Park or Simpsons? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, Simpsons. Okay, a couple of music ones. Uh, Slayer or Pantera? Pantera all the way. Cannibal Corpse or Black Dahlia Murder? Well, that, that's not a fair comparison, <laughs> surely. <laughs> well, if I said Black Dahlia Murder, even Trevor from Black Dahlia Murder would be like, shut up, Cannibal Corpse, so Cannibal Corpse. Yeah, I, I had him on the show last week and um, yeah. I had to alter it to Cannibal Corpse and Death. Um, and he. There you go. That's what I'm saying. It's not really. It's not a fair comparison. Yeah, if he was like Cannibal Corpse or Morbid Angel, that would be like a more fair thing or you know but cannibal corpse and black dahlia murder nah man that's like <laughs> diff, diff, different eras completely different eras different subgenres, everything um metallica or megadeth metallica anthrax or testament uh 
Old Testament. Uh, Slipknot or yeah. Machine Head? Oh, that's a tough one. Burn My Eyes is probably my favourite metal album ever, but Slipknot, fucking Slipknot in it, I don't know. Slipknot or Machine Head, fuck. That's a tough one. Slipknot, we'll say Slipknot. Okay. Um, Although I don't like the new stuff. No, OG, it's got to be the OG stuff. Um, Yeah, first Slipknot album, second Slipknot album, fucking amazing. Well, see the next one. The next selection, I'll I'll say, based off their first album, is or both bands off their first album is Whitechapel or Suicide Silence. I'd have to say Whitechapel because I signed that band and put that album out, so I've got to be biased. Yeah, it's a sexy album that one. Um, last few. You're playing a show. Do you want stage dives going on or mic grabs going on? Stage dives. Okay. You go to a show. Do you want to watch it from the pit? Or by the sound desk. By the sound desk. Um, do you, would you rather tour for the rest of your life or record for the rest of your life? And I know you need one with the other. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, record because you can't release a tour really. Mm-hmm. Like that's not a timeless thing that I could look back on with my kids later. You know. Um, last one. I'm going to give you your all-time favorite album. Do you want it on CD, vinyl, or on your phone? Um, I would say on vinyl. Mm. Yeah, it, it looks more impressive. I've got a collection of vinyl, but I don't have a vinyl yeah. player. So <laughs> is... that's that's like a cardinal sin, isn't it? No, I think it's just a metalhead thing. You you get your collection going, yeah. but you just I I I think the thing for me is I don't want to play them. They just look so nice. I just want to keep right. them. Go yeah, on. yeah. Well, I, I listen to most of my music through streaming. But um, mm. everything that you that uniquely has released, I've um, I've got on vinyl just for sort of the you know the collection side. Ooh. And if I really really like an album, I will buy it on vinyl. But I know what you mean. It tends to not get played. No, it doesn't. It sits there. Like I've probably got mm, 150, maybe 100. So mm. ballpark just sitting there. Damn. But I've I've got behind me in my and room. No player. No, but behind me, I've got like 3,000 CDs, so that's still going strong. So you've got a very expensive collection of beer coasters. Well, as the, as the wife says, I've got a very expensive, pointless, you know, wall of crap, she says. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Sounds familiar. Mm. Um, <laughs> Jamie, I've got to just say um, thank you um, again. That was epic. I really appreciate it. Um, in depth. Oh, thank you. Um, I really appreciate this, man. Nice one. Well, thanks a lot for having me. And uh, yeah, cool. Thanks very much. Hope we do it again.
So that was my chat with Jamie of Viscera and Unique Leader Records. And at the end there, you heard Viscera's track, Lamb to the Slaughter. The second track was also by Viscera, and you heard Obsidian. Both of those tracks are from the album called Obsidian. And the last track you heard there was a bit of a throwback for Jamie. That was Heart of a Coward and the track Hollow, which is from their release called Deliverance. Now's the part of the show where I'm going to spark that thing inside you to support Jamie and support what he does in this industry. So if you enjoyed the conversation, if you enjoyed the music at the end there, get online, stream it, download it, buy it, whatever it is, support Jamie and his band or support Jamie and his record label. The other way you can support him is buy a physical copy or buy some merch. As was said recently over the last few weeks, with things being in a very confusing realm, touring is out of the question. So support your artists with streams, downloads, physical copy purchases, whatever it is, help out the artists like Jamie to keep doing what they do. Now I've got to take this moment to thank Jamie again. Thank you so very, very much, dude, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. Really look forward to touching base with you again soon and doing a part two chat. And that's it. That's the Mosh Zone episode 115. Done, dusted, all wrapped up, locked away for this week. Guys, if you're a first-time listener, thank you for tuning in. I hope you come back over future weeks on future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you as always for tuning in and hope you come back in future weeks. This time of the show is when I remind you that we need your help to get out to more listeners. So if you've got a few moments this week and you enjoyed this episode, share it on your social medias. Also, tell everyone you know about the Mosh Zone. Help us out. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. Also, at this time of the show, I need to remind you that if you want to find Mosh News and Mosh Reviews, we have it all on our website and social medias. Our website is www.themoshzone.com. Our social medias are all at The Mosh Zone, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, don't forget... You can also get in touch through our email address, which is themoshzone at gmail.com. Get in touch, guys. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. There's not much else to talk about. That is all of my rambling done. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay safe. Open the pitch.